Welcome to the Birds FM pod- podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to Declaration of Military Accountability Signatory Tech Sergeant Scott Lauterbaugh. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And tonight is January 20 or January 30th in the year 2024. That's Thursday. You know, I'm going to start over. This is unbelievable. I can't even get my date right. This is crazy. Okay, so let's start it again. Good evening, Patriots. <laughs> so good evening, Patriots. Today is Tuesday, January 30th in the year 2024. Not working on time warps, that's for sure. But this month has flown by. It's insane how quickly it has gone. And quite frankly, it is just amazing where we are. We're already at the end of the month. And so much has happened. And then today, O'Keefe, James O'Keefe released something, you know, I'm not suicidal note about something he's going to release tomorrow, which I'm to be honest with you, that's a little dramatic. I mean, only because James O'Keefe has done a lot of stuff and it's not that he's not going to reveal something profound, but he's done this once before. And I hope that it was, it's more dramatic, more impactful than the last one because the last one was kind of a dead cat bounce. But anyway, we'll see. This seems to be a common thing coming up lately. People are feeling pressure, and I'm hearing it from a, quite a number of places of comments like, I'm not suicidal. And I hope that's just the pressure of the events. I know that there's some real issues at play here. The deep state is really on the move, and there's a lot of threat because they're being so heavily exposed, and that's fine. But you also have to have a lot of faith, and faith is the place where God will take you through that, so don't fall into that place and I understand why people say it, but at the same time, like God's got, God's got you if you're intended to be here. It's that simple. Okay, before we get going, we're going to talk a little bit about preparation. I've been talking this morning about this ever grand issue, and this ever grand issue is huge in China. It's basically like the the, the money laundering fund for the entire global elite. Liabilities for BlackRock, Blackstone, and Vanguard alone are estimated at $127 trillion, and Evergrande is now insolvent. You can expect that this is going to hit every pension, every 401k, every retirement plan across the nation. It's going to hit. And it when, I don't know. It's a tsunami that's begun. But there's a lot of shuffling that's going to go on. You're going to see quietly bank closures. You're going to see banks trying to consolidate funds to back it up. There's going to probably be some account seizures of money. There's a lot of things that are starting to happen as the system starts to collapse because this idea of running on a fiat currency forever is ultimately going to catch up for us. Okay, all that said, all that's going to lead at a certain point towards an accountability and an awakening here in the culture, and it is going to be a big one. And part of that is going to be food issues. You need to be prepared. Here's something that's crazy. When you look at Gen Z and you look at Gen, well, Gen Z in particular, recent studies have shown that they are... 40% of the Gen Z is preparing for the worst, 40%. And that exceeds Gen X. I don't know where you fit in that, but I know I'm Gen X. Fortunately, I'm very well prepared. But the point is that people are not preparing enough. 
and you need to be prepared because there's a lot of unsettling things coming. Now, you know that we push our preparedness food, and that's by My Patriot Supply, which I love this, this company, at our website, which is preparewithbards.com. Preparewithbards.com. You can head over there, but also you can go to My Patriot Supply. It depends on wherever you, you want to go. But preparewithbards.com is where you're going to see the best and the greatest of all things. And what you're going to find right now is something really amazing. There is a one-year emergency food kit program available there my page for my Patriot supply. So I would head over there and check this out. The, the food kit is enough to get you through an entire year. My Patriot supply has helped millions of, of Americans prepare for emergencies, and they're ready now to help you. Isn't that amazing? So anyway, check it out. You, you've got inside, there's, everything's sealed, four-layered packaging. You've got great, delicious meals, 2,000 calories a day. Shelf life of 25 years. It's fantastic. And with this, the price, there's 2,000 calories a day per day in a year at a special price of under $2,000. So this is a full system kit for for a full year. Pretty pretty awesome. Goodbye. So you don't usually find a deal like this or a package like this. They are, in this day and age, they're quite rare. So check it out. Head on over to preparewithbards.com. Preparewithbards.com. Check out those one-year programs. They're good. Worth taking a preparation for. It takes all the worry off of you. And you get free shipping, which is even better. So, again, preparewithbars.com. Check out the one-year preparedness kit for the food. It's good. You won't be disappointed. The Declaration of Military Accountability started on the 1st of January. We're now 30 days into it. And I made a point of bringing on a number of signatories onto this program so you get to know the quality of people that are on there. Tonight is a very unique person, and as I got to know him, I was even more impressed. We typically look at the leadership coming from certain areas in our military, and right now, in general, we just don't have good leadership at all, to be honest. Our country lacks leadership. We have every single flag officer that violated the law with the COVID con and forced mandate of the, of the vaccine, which was the death shot. We still have soldiers lining up with massive injuries. It's just crazy. And that's not to mention even what's going on in the public. This thing is very real. It's caused a tremendous amount of damage. And the casualties alone are going to take, take us years and generations to get over. So when you start to look for courage, you start to look initially into your special operations community. And you're like, okay, these guys must be the ones leading the way. And we've seen some amazing heroes in that. Text, or Team Sergeant retired Corey Terry. And Lieutenant Colonel retired Pete Chambers, both Green Berets, Cam Hamilton, Navy SEAL, just to name a couple or a few there. They're just fantastic. And then we see Brad Miller, who comes in from the Army side as 101st Battalion commander that held his line. Incredible. Rob Green, Commander Rob Green from the Navy. And he's a, he literally is a, he steers ships. I mean, he's on the fleet side. So that's another big deal. We have pilots. We have intelligence folks. We have a whole range of people. But tonight you're going to meet a different type of hero. And I mean, this guy in my book is right up there with everybody else. And it's not just because he signed the paper. This is Tech Sergeant Scott Lauterbaugh. He's a cook. And who would ever think that the cook would have more leadership strength and more spine than every one of our generals in our, in our military? As you will learn, and his story is very interesting. He's very talented. He's 
actually served. He's had four honorable discharges. You'll hear this. That's unique in itself. But not only did he hold the line on this vax, he had done his research. He challenged the leadership to do an investigation and declared it an act of war as, as a E7. This takes some real courage, and he did it in front of the generals. He is fearless, and he, he walks truly with the heart of the soldiers, and he has to take care of his soldiers and airmen, and that's his primary duty. Amazing man. So I'm anxious for you to meet him. He, is, he re reminds us, and I, I like to say, anymore I'm probably going to say this, be the cook. Be the cook. Have that much courage. Be fearless in this time. And we need more We need more Scott Lauderbaughs. We need more cooks in this fight that are unafraid, that are going to do the right thing no matter the cost. And when we get to those sorts of people standing the line, we'll, we'll bring everything back into order. Our military is a critical one to recapture. It's broken. The leadership is broken. And the farther down we go, and I'm going to say this before we get this rolling tonight, and it's important because this message is to every person in the military right now and every person in the government right now that's serving this nation under an oath. That includes Border Patrol, DHS. It includes FBI. It includes NSA, CIA. It includes all you folks. You have lived in a bubble where you've never seen accountability become personal. You've been able to do things that are maybe within the unit or within the place that yours accountability. But seldom have you held a place where you're going to be held accountability, be held accountability for actions that affect everybody in the military. Not everybody is going to be judged the same based on UCMJ, but I'm going to tell you that the hammer's coming. You have a very narrow window in time to do the right thing. And as the hammer falls, there's going to be a point and comes just like a guillotine when it hits. Probably a good metaphor to remember. That when the guillotine hits, there's no more moving forward, no more moving back to get apologies or try to seek repentance. We're coming into that window now. A lot of things are moving very quickly, globally, economically, politically, even in the sense of acts of war. And as we tip into these places, our leadership that is feckless and has done the wrong thing and in violation of the law, that's not just our generals. That's where we begin. But we will root you out, and you, we will find you. And everyone from a oh, from the level of flag officers to 06 down to PFC Snuffy, if you have been violating the law, pushing people to get this jab, at the end of the day, there's going to be accountability. And don't think you're immune. So I'm telling you, whether if you're on border patrol and you're letting illegal aliens come across the border, you're in violation of the law. You're in violation of the Constitution, which is the law of the land. You will be held accountable. If you've been pushing the backs, you'll be held accountable. thing that everybody needs to hear, and when I speak to this, I'm speaking to the federal aspect and the state employees that you think you're all immune. If you're in violation of the Constitution, that's treason. And everything is fine when you think you've got the people under your thumb or that you people really aren't paying attention. The problem is everybody's paying attention now. And once you violate the Constitution and you don't live to your oath as you are sworn to do and you lose the will of the people, you can do the numbers yourself. But I guarantee you there's more of us than there are of you. So do the right thing.
and do the right thing by step, stepping across and supporting those that are supporting the Constitution. Don't be worshiping your pension. Don't be worshiping your union rules. Don't be worshiping your salary. These are the false idols that are leading you astray and leading you to walk into a reprobate mind, which I will tell you is going to cost you everything in the end. We're entering into a window where the window of repentance and forgiveness is before you. Choose the right path. Choose God. Choose this nation. Choose the Constitution. Choose we the people. Once that door slams shut, then buckle up for what comes because you've earned your way. And this is no more games. We're not playing. We're not, we're not doing this anymore. You have killed people. Your actions have destroyed a nation. Your actions have allowed a nation to be infiltrated. Your actions have allowed a military to be degraded to an operational inefficiency. You've waged war on the American people. That's treason. And by definition of waging war against the American people, which includes allowing illegal aliens across the border, which includes mandating an illegal injection that was a not intended, was not approved by the FDA that ended up being a bioweapon, those are the things that you need to understand. You will be held accountable. The higher up the food chain you go, that accountability is going to be more severe. And I guarantee you the way this will run at the end is you will be demonstrated in front of the public for the crimes which you have done. You will not be able to hide in the shadows. Because the only way forward in this is in sense of accountability is a legal and ethical process. But that means that there will be trials and tribunals and you will be held accountable. You will not escape this. There's no place you can run because once we pivot this and we have the resources to hunt down a flea halfway across the world, trust me, you can know there's no rock you can hide that we will not find you. We're not playing games. The DMA is not about a game. It's not about an idle threat. It's about taking this nation back by setting a standard of what accountability looks like and what was the greatest military in the world. And we will restore that accountability. So... Wherever you are in the place of the food chain in the federal government, I don't care if you're a cubicle warrior or if you're some, some pen-pushing frog in the back room. I don't care if you are in the most elite special operations unit. I don't care if you are some lime PFC, some specialist, or you're some general sitting on his tail in the Pentagon thinking you're all safe and happy because you've got a colonel making your coffee. I don't care. You will be held accountable to the Constitution and to the laws of this land. And you violated the law if you have pushed this injection upon your soldiers and you have stood there and allowed that illegal mandate to go through. End of story. And as a result, we have a whole culture within our military and a whole culture within our government that lives in a culture of unaccountability. That will end. And it is ending now. 2024 will be the pivot. And in the next couple of months, that door of, of forgiveness is going to slam shut. Trust me, we're moving faster than many of you out there in the federal government understand. But things are changing, and you won't like the outcome if you don't start standing with the, with the Constitution. And don't come crying little crocodile tears to us either, because we don't care. The American public is not going to give you any sympathy or empathy for the work and the, for the damage that you have done, the murder that you have extolled upon our soldiers and the murder which you have extolled upon our nation. When all the truth comes out and you sit there going, well, I didn't mean, I just fell, fell, followed orders. Well, that'll either be breaking big rocks to small rocks for a very long time 
or we'll just swing you on a noose. I don't care. But either way, it's going to be legal, it's going to be ethical, and it will be processed that way, and you won't like the outcome. So turn from your evil ways. Repent. Stand with God and back the Constitution. Now, patriots, let's hear about courage from a man who was just a cook, who has more courage than most of the leadership in our military. Let me introduce you to Scott Lauterbaugh. Patriots, I'm really honored today to have Tech Sergeant Scott Lauterbaugh on with us. Now, he is a signer on the Declaration of Military Accountability, the 231 people that signed on there. He's one of them. Very interesting individual. And I think what's most interesting as we start to learn who these people are is we start to find out the courage comes in many forms. And the more that we put the pieces together with the 231, it is truly a God assembly because it's like this is an entire special operations unit with everything you would possibly want to run a military team. Tech Sergeant Scott Lauterbaugh is a chef and he has a long, great history in, in actually three different branches of the military of doing just that. And I'm really excited to have him on today to talk about who he is, what his fight has been to protect his soldiers from this death shot, the COVID con, and just to understand the magnitude of where we are today. So Scott, welcome to the show. How are you? How are you doing, sir? Uh, it's nice to meet you. Your name's Scott too, and so is mine. So that's cool. It is. It's uh, really nice. Yeah. Hey, so let's just start a little bit about you. We had a nice conversation before and let's, I want, I want the Patriots to know who you are and kind of your career and a lot about you. Well, first I just want to give all glory to God. Um, before we go, you know, start, because I feel that we were all brought into this spiritually, and uh, I want to give him thanks and praise first and foremost. And then, um, so a little bit about me. Um, <clears throat> I joined the military in um, October 3rd of 1993, um, right out of high school. So I had four years of naval science, which basically got me into um, E3 status, which is seaman, so to speak, that's E3, that's your third rank in, in any branch of the military. Um, joined the Navy and went to basic training boot, boot camp was in Great Lakes, Illinois, in Chicago. Uh, once I got through that, my first duty station and graduated and everything, uh, first duty station was the USS John F. Kennedy, which is aircraft carrier. It's uh, CBA-67. What that means is it, CV is carrier vessel and A is for attack. So it was an attack aircraft carrier. It's the last oil burner um, before the nuclear uh, carriers were brought into position. So I served on there for uh, four years active duty. Um, I was a chef. In the beginning part of it, what really happened, just to step back a second, um, when I was in basic training, every military member goes through galley duty. That's what they call it, which is usually your sixth week in basic training. <clears throat> so at that point, because of my upbringing as a family and our family and everything, my grandparents were Italian. So we always ate really good, um, especially on Sundays or on the weekends. And I really loved cooking and things of that nature. We were taught that from my grandparents. So when I went in, I, that's basically what I wanted to do. I felt the camaraderie with other people. I think food brings people together and it was something that I really wanted to do. So from that point on, uh, I had gotten a recommendation letter from Senior Chief Gosho, which was the galley uh, chief at the time. 
and uh, wrote me a recommendation letter. So I went to my first duty station. I basically handed that in. And instead of going to the S2 level or S2 division, which is the enlisted galley, I was bumped up to S5 division, which is for wardroom officers. Uh, so I was put there and I would say probably a good four years of my career were there. I also did um, Operation Sea Signal, which was a joint task force in Guantanamo via Cuba. So we did mass feeding. It wasn't just, I wasn't just an officer's chef the whole time. Um, it was mass feeding for um, migrants, Cuban and Haitian refugees that fled their country. So we had done mass feeding. There was a lot of rice and pork and beef and things of that nature um, there. And I served there for about a year. I was in Guantanamo Bay. Um, but my my whole first part of the of my enlistment in the Navy was awesome because um, not only did I get to serve officers and everything, but a lot of camaraderie with the enlisted uh, galley. And as you know, when you cook as a chef and everything, you've got sometimes you got a little bit of a bump. You know, you can use you know your food and technique, and you know bring people. You know, we used to say to go boxes or things like that. So in order for me to get my mail, you know, first, I could use that as like a, you know, bargaining chip. Hey, we got, you know, I got some extra cinnamon rolls for you, what have you. You know what I mean? So I always get you a little bit, you know, ahead of the other people. But um, the one part in my career that was really, that I thought was uh, the pinnacle of my career was um, one night I was a night baker at the time and I was making cinnamon rolls. Um, and the captain of the ship, who I didn't know at, at the time because I was, pulling them out of the oven, so I had my back to them. So I had brought them out, we were, I, I was icing them up, and he pulls a cooler up, he goes, mind if I, you know, sit down here and have a discussion with him? I'm like, sure. And he went to grab one of the cinnamon rolls, and said, they're really hot, and I'll get you one here. You know, didn't really pay any mind, and then he had brought up a cup of coffee and sat down, he goes, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, well, I want to be a chef. And at the time, I was doing, um, they brought uh, St. Augustine Culinary, on board the ship and you can take college courses and things like that. So I did Central Texas College, um, basic courses, you know, and then St. Augustine was on board the ship. So you could actually do college courses while you're underway. So out to sea is what that means. And he had asked me, he goes, uh, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, well, I want to be a chef and this is what I'm doing and everything like that. So he was like, well, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, I finished up and he, he left. And then I would say about two weeks later, my senior chief, Senior Chief Grant came to me. He goes, uh, I got to talk to you. And I thought I was actually in trouble. And they brought me in the office. And I said, what's up? And he goes, uh, you're getting bumped up. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, you're going up to the captain's gallery. So now here I am. I'm a, I'm a you know, seaman. I'm an E3. And I'm one of the chefs or one of the cooks for the captain of the ship of the USS John F. Kennedy, CV-67. And it's just like amazing. And I never thought about it you know, until later on in my career, you know, you just go doing your job and stuff like that. And it was pretty amazing. We went to uh, Dublin, Ireland, Barcelona, Spain, and Portsmouth, Portsmouth, England. So I was mostly on the East Coast. I never saw, you know, Iraq or any of the, you know, I was never in the desert area or anything like that. But I did get to meet a lot of high-end dignitaries, like uh, John F. Kennedy's daughter, Carolyn Kennedy, and, um, cooking for the admiral, different admirals and cooking for uh, secretary of the Navy. So it was, it was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool ride. 
and that was kind of like my Navy career at the end of that. Uh, that part I got out for a little bit, had a break in service just so I could finish up with my college and things like that. And at the time I was living in New Jersey and everybody moved out. My whole family moved out to Pittsburgh, back to Pittsburgh, where I was born originally. Uh, and then I went to college out here, finished up at Pennsylvania Culinary, downtown Pittsburgh. Then I met my wife. And at that point I went into, just before 9-11 happened, I uh, signed up to join the Army Reserves. So that was kind of like the the next step in the next part of my career. So that's the Navy part of it right there. So you went from Navy to Army Reserves, and then yep. how long were you in the Army Reserves? Army Reserves was two years. I did um, two years Army Reserves, 6th Area Transportation Unit, uh, Washington County, Washington, PA, Washington County, PA. So I, at that part, I was uh, 88 Mike. 92 golf. <clears throat> so I got to learn how to drive tractor trailers. So you're, you're like delivering, like, you're, you're delivering your own cook unit to the field. <laughs> it was, it was cool. It was, um, Sergeant Himes <laughs> was my, um, my NCO at the time. And, uh, <clears throat> I never drove, like I knew how to drive stick, but I never drove tractor trailers. 16 gear slapstick is what they called it. So, you know, you have your clutch, your brake, and your gas pedal, and then you have this bar thing that's almost like it rings like a bell every time when you need to go to shift, and it's got 16 gears on it, and it's got like a, it's kind of like a, a console, it's right on the console, so wherever your console is in your truck, that's where the slapstick would be, that's where your gear shifts are. So, um, you know, we were getting ready to do our two weeks training, annual training, which was down in uh, Somerville, South Carolina. So we were bringing hurricane relief down at Connex boxes. So the first time they would, we didn't load them, but we drove them down. So we would do runs basically. So, uh, <laughs> and I was usually in the passenger seat while Sergeant Nimes was driving. So, uh, he goes, you ever drive? I said, well, I know how to drive. Like, of course I have my driver's license. And he goes, no, do you know how to drive a tractor trailer? I was like, oh, not really. He goes, well, you're going to learn today. And I was like, what? <laughs> So he's like, get out, come over to the driver's side. And this is like while we were going down there. So I like, I got like crash course training in a tractor trailer right on the main highways with everybody else. So we had a convoy. It wasn't just me. There was other tractor trailers. I would say probably about 20 other tractor trailers with Connex boxes for medical supplies and things like that for hurricanes in case they hit, you know, down at Cape Hatteras or any of those areas down, you know, by Georgia, Florida, things like that. And then they would have a hub to go to to distribute out supplies in case they need it for American citizens and stuff like that, emergency situations. So here I am, you know, I'm E4 at that time. And um, I'm a, I guess right now you're a specialist in the army. That's the rank name. And um, I'm driving down and I'm, I'm smoking tires. I'm burning brakes. Um, the truck's going <laughs> like a rocking horse back and forth. And my sergeant's looking at me, he's having a aisle time. He's laughing and everything. He's like, okay, you know. So I finally get it down pat and, you know, getting the gears to shift and everything, you know, going nice and well-oiled machine the way it's supposed to be. So that was my crash course in training. And then on the way back, I was like part of the convoy. You know what I mean? I felt part of something that I was with the other guys or the other ladies that were, you know, women that were driving. And we had CBs and everything. We're just having a aisle time, like, doing our job, but having fun with it, like music blaring and stuff like that. 
and talking on the radio. And uh, I learned so much just from that experience. And it was just so cool to like be a part of that. And then the cooking part of it, a lot of it was uh, immersion heaters and uh, gas powered uh, pilots. And what they do is they set up these gigantic propane stoves. And then you have these big, you know, 20 gallon pots, you know, that you're cooking in and grilling and everything like that. And you, you know, basically train in tent city, you know, and you live it up, you know, off the land, so to speak, during your training. So I was doing both of those jobs at that point in time. And it was really a good experience for me. So your last position, that's part of my army. I'm sorry. No, I said that was the uh, army part of my career. That's awesome. And then you, then from there you moved into the air force. Is that correct? Yeah, Air National Guard. It was uh, I served at the 171st Air National Guard in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So it's right out by the Pittsburgh International Airport. I served 12 years there. So right now I have two honorable discharges. I'm working on my third. <clears throat> so I served 12 years there as as a chef. This was all enlisted and for drills. It's it, you know it's reserves. Um, but I did another part of the job that I that I did also was uh, it was called FCERT, so search fatality and rescue. So not only did I do the cooking part of it, but I was also an element embedded with the army that was with um, trying to, with embedded with FEMA. So anytime there's like a disaster, like hurricane, I'll say hurricanes because if you bring up Louisiana um, down there, where they FEMA would go and mark the houses and stuff like that to see if there was any deceased or um, people that were alive that were stranded, then they would go, we would go in and rescue them. So I played a big role in that. I did Polaris training. We had Polaris vehicles that we would go into tight knit areas. They had people that were in the army that were a part of us. So there was like a, it was kind of like a joint task force was just army and air, air guard together. So army guard and air guard were together. And a lot of our training was done out at Fort Indian town gap. So we would drive from Pittsburgh out to Harrisburg, which is about middle of the state of Pennsylvania, the capital um, of the state. And we would do training there with the army and they would have, you know, bunkers and concrete rubble piles and things like that. And they would drop scenarios of different situations, different rescue situations that we would go in and do and an attempt, you know, to rescue people. And if there were people that were injured, we'd get them out of there and stuff like that. And it dealt a lot with uh, biological, radiological, and chemical warfare also. So I learned like tons of stuff just being in the guard alone. So we would drive out there. We would have Ford F-350 um, trucks. And then in tow, we would have trailers off the back, probably about 18, I would say 18 foot trailer off the back. And we'd have three Polaris vehicles on there in tow. We'd have about uh, three of those. So I was a dri one of the main drivers for that. And then I would also conduct training uh, to Army and Air Guard, um, and, you know, people that were in there that were on our team and do training for those rubble pile areas or areas that were tight knit in the woods and stuff like that. Anything that was out of the flat elements. And um, so I served 12 years there and... I ended up being um, coming out as a tech sergeant. So I got promoted to E5 staff sergeant uh, 2013. And then 2016, I was promoted to technical sergeant. 
um, in the Air National Guard. And that would be my third honorable discharge. So that brings us to the, somewhere in there, that brings us to the COVID issue, right? Yes, sir. So I basically transferred over to the 9-11th. There was some issues on on a leadership level at the 171st that I wasn't too keen on, you know what I mean, how things go. But And the 9-11th is uh, an air wing? Is that correct? The 9-11th is an air wing. The 171st is a KC-135. They were a refueling wing. So basically they have refuelers there. I should have touched on that. And they refuel aircraft midair. Um, that's their job to do. That. That's the mission of the of that base. And that was just a small element off to the side. You know what I mean? That we do all the food and camaraderie and things like that. We do also do as services wise. We do um, like MWR. So all your events, your um, the bars and the karaoke and things like that, and the games and. Uh, football and athletic time, you know, athletic activities and stuff like that. So that's what services does in the, in the air force. <clears throat> so I transfer over to nine 11th to do up my last is my last three years. I enlisted for four, but I only needed three to hit my 20. And I was planning on retiring. Um, so I joined up over there and this was right after uh, my, my father had passed away in 2019 before all this garbage started happening, the, the COVID scenario. Um, and he would always tell me like my whole upbringing was uh, finish what you start. So this were happened right after I, I got out of the 171st and I was kind of debating if I was going to stay in or not. I knew I only had like three years left. So, you know, I transferred over and uh, served over there as a, as a chef or as a cook. And uh, I was doing really good for the first two years. I was actually putting in for master, for master sergeant. And that came to an abrupt halt because the COVID scenario came into play. So at that point, we're sitting at 2020, just bef- just March is when all the, the crap hit the fan. And uh, I started noticing on our on the base that the, com- that the kernel of the base was not pushing he wasn't pushing any of the masks and he wasn't pushing any of the testing. And then I started doing a lot of my own research and started seeing what was actually coming. Now you have a big, like you have from March till August is when the vac, you know, they implemented the vaccines on my base, but I think they started probably in July, I would say, or June. I'm not hundred percent sure because it was different for every area. It didn't all come in one shot across the country. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I started hearing about adverse reactions, I would say f- around July of 2020. I just want to make sure I get the dates right or the time frame right, because I didn't stand up until 2021. So it had to have been after that time frame. I'm, I guess we're in 2021. So... Basically what happens is in August of 2021, that's when we started getting hit with everything. And everybody was, there was already talk about that everyone was going to have to get these vaccines, but it wasn't implemented yet. So the time came for our commander's call and everyone was, was, was supposed to be at drill. We were all ordered via email, you know, I mean, this drill session, you know, they go through their spiel. Um, everyone was to attend. There is no excuses. 
and not to attend, you know, and you're all going to come in and there's a big commander's call for each squadron as well as a commander's call for the entire base. So seeing that what was going on and a lot of my airmen were coming up to me and questioning me, what are we going to do? I don't want to get this. I think a lot of them knew about it, that this was coming and they were, they had mixed emotions as far as decision-making was concerned. If they were actually going to do it, if they were set dead on, I'm not getting this. I think a lot of them knew. Um, and they came up to me and I was thinking to myself at the time, I have to do something about it, but you know, when, you know what I mean? So I put together this kind of document or letter called infiltration from within. And I put together all of these different links and all the research that I did and all of the, the vitamins that you can take to, as a preventative and the hydroxychloroquine and the ivermectin and the zithromycin packets to combat, you know, this type of whatever, you know, cold basically, or whatever they were telling us that it was so deadly. Um, and I kind of forced myself to tell my airmen, listen, I'm going to do this. Um, I'm waiting for them to make a move, but I can't do it until they, you know, say what they have to say. So in the meantime, I already knew that we had this meeting. So I put together this, this letter and my commander basically stood up and she said, okay, you know, next drill, which is in October of 2021. And mind you, this is right now we're at September 11th of 2021. It's a Saturday and of all dates, it's September 11th and it's probably around three o'clock. I would say the end of the day. <clears throat> And we had a big commander's call and everybody was to attend, no excuses. So they put their spiel together of why everyone's getting the vaccine and there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Everybody's getting it. <clears throat> so at the end of her message or whatever you want to call it, her spiel, uh, she said, are there any comments, questions, or concerns? You know, they have to ask that, I guess, when they're done. And I already had all the paperwork in front of me. And I stood up, I raised my hand. I said, yes, ma'am, I do. And I stood up and I handed every single one of the leaderships. So from the lieutenant colonel down to the major, down to, you know, the first shirt, the captain and the senior master sergeant, I gave them all the same paperwork and I called for a timeout. What a timeout is in the military is that if there's an emergency situation, so I'm going to give like a hypothetical here of a training scenario and say that there was a bunch of army or airmen or, you know, enlisted members that are changing a tire out and the jack goes out from underneath the vehicle and slams down and an airman gets injured. You can call if it's a training scenario or any type of scenario, you can call for a timeout. What that does is stops everything. And when they, they basically do an investigation on why it happened and this and that. Well, that's what I had done. I already knew that my airmen were upset. I already knew that there were adverse reactions that were happening to military brothers and sisters in all branches, all six branches of the military. Um, I already knew what was happening and a lot of airmen were really upset. And I mean, to the point where there were airmen there that were the age of my daughter that were on their knees, practically crying because they didn't want to get this thing. 
So I called for a timeout and I stood up and gave them all the documentation. And basically their eyes pretty much shot out of their head, like as if they couldn't believe someone would, you know, do that or was, I don't want to say prepared, but I guess it was just something that I knew in my heart that I needed to do. And as an NCO, your duty is to protect your airmen. And I saw that, that they were suffering not only on a, on a mental level, but a physical level as well. Uh, so I did that. I stood up. And when I looked around the room, I kind of just glanced to left and right after I did get done, after I did stand up and nobody else stood up. So at that point, you're like, ah, oh, you know, you got that, you know, that feeling in you. Did I, you know, what did I just do? You know what I mean? And then you kind of question yourself, did I do the right thing? So at that point, the adrenaline is pretty much flowing through me like rocket fuel. And uh, so I go outside and, you know, I'm basically I was reprimanded before I went outside. I was like, you can't, you can't do this. You can't stand up and say that, you know, you're declaring war, you know, you're a declaration of war. And in my mind, we're already attacked. You know what I mean? So we were at war, you know what I'm saying? So that's how I kind of like, that's where that my senior master sergeant had yelled at me and said, you can't, you know, you got to sit down. You can't, you know, for, for, you know, uh, state a declaration of war. And in my mind, like I said, we were already there. So anyways, after we were done, I was pretty much adrenalized pretty good. And I went and sat outside and, um, after the passing of my father, uh, my wife was helping move my mother into our house because I wasn't going to have my mother live in a home or anything like that, especially with everything that was going on. And, uh, they were moving my dad's, uh, plumbing business paperwork and everything. And my wife had no idea that I just, <laughs> that I just did this, you know, stood up in front of everybody and, and you know, the whole entire squadron of 60 people at the time and did this. And, uh, basically what she had told me is that the stack of papers that she was moving was my dad's business documents and stuff like that, that were going to get destroyed because the business was getting, you know, plumbing business was getting nullified, you know, null and void or closed down. And uh, she went to move these documents and they fell out of her hand and a picture of my father and his fatigues fell out from Vietnam. And she took a screenshot of it and sent it to me in a picture. She had no, like I said, I'm sitting on the bench right now and I'm like thinking to myself, what the heck did I do? And um, she sends me this picture and it's my dad. And I, at that point in time, it was like, as if he was telling me, you know, he always said, you know, if you don't like what's going on, do something about it. But he would yell, like, you know, because I was a teenager, you know what I mean? And I'm, you know, you're going through adolescence and you're being, you know, parented or disciplined. So there were times that he would say things to me and I could just, I looked at that picture and I could just see him saying that to me. You know what I mean? And it was as if he was saying, you know, you know what you need to do. So do it. And it was already done. But I think just that picture alone, just seeing that was like, rocket fuel for me because it was now I not only have to stand up for my airmen and everything. Now I got to stand up for myself and my family and my family name and everything that I was raised on. So, um, I was raised Roman Catholic. So as a kid, I went to church a lot, you know, and went to CCD, I did catechism and, uh, communion, penance, confirmation, all those things that you do Roman Catholic wise. And, uh, I believe in God and, you know, being married to my wife for almost 25 years now and having three children, my duty now was um, to fight for my career and to fight for my family, protect my family. 
So that's kind of like where I was at at that point. <clears throat> this is really an amazing story. I, I, that piece yeah. of your father just really struck me very deeply. Yeah, Brad Miller did an inter, uh, interview on YouTube with me, and I basically show all the pictures and the documents and stuff like that. I can't show everything because it would take me all day just to show every single document that I have from beginning to, beginning to end of what they did, not just to me, but this was happening to every member on my base and every member in the armed forces and every branch. So the American people don't understand the magnitude of this, of how bad this was. You know what I mean? It not only hit the civilian level because it hit the medical field and everybody else. You know what I mean? But I don't think they understand the magnitude of what military members suffered and went through. Scott, let's and walk I'm through that. The, let's talk, yeah. let's walk through that. Cause I, I think you're right. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's a great observation because the, the war on the outside was brutal. And I, and I, and I really mean this. And, and even for myself who has connections and had been in, there was a wide separation of what was really going on inside the main body force. Mm -hmm. And so as the, these truths start percolating out, not from, the veterans, but now from those that have stood up, Rob Green, um, Brad Miller, yourself, others, we're starting to see the magnitude, yeah. the magnitude of this is basically this, this terror regime that went on in our military and leveraging the fact that you had signed an oath to, to serve and defend the nation, but they used that in such a devious way to force compliance into something that was completely illegal. Walk us through some of this terror that was going on. Because it literally, there's no other way to frame it. It is a terror campaign that went on within their ranks. Yeah, so what happened was, and that's a good, that's a good question. So, <clears throat> so just to go a little bit back to, well, it was actually heading right into this. Because then the next drill, which was been October 2nd and 3rd, I believe, of 2021. That's when I saw with my own eyes, like, what was going down. And so... You mentioned your oath and everything, right? So your oath to the country and the constitution, there's also creeds that are in every branch of the military in an NCO level. And those creeds basically show what leadership is and what leadership is supposed to be. And your your oath also goes into the creeds, which transition into, um, for me would be my airmen, for you would be your soldiers, for the Navy would be their seamen, for you know, the guardian, the um, Space Force would be the guardians and so forth. Each branch has like their men or their their group. You know what I mean? Um, Coast Guards are the, you know, the same thing. They're set up the same way the Navy is. The Marines are for their, are their, to their soldiers as well. So anyone that's up in the NCO level, so an E5 level and up are non-commissioned officers and their duty is to the airmen below them or the enlisted members below them. And that's where I felt like my oath came into play because this, like I said, we were already attacked. Okay, so we're at war in my mind at that time. And now I'm going to see as this comes out how bad it's going to be. So what they did was you had two choices at the time. It was either the Pfizer or Moderna. And everybody went up to the hangar bay and two lines. So they already knew by doing this, they already knew they were documenting everything. So they already knew who was getting the inoculations. Okay. They already knew who were getting the vaccines. Then at that, at that same place, before the lines were formed, they had a group of people that were off to the right-hand side that were for medical exemptions. 
So those were for individuals who had like a medical condition um, that put an exemption in or were going to put an exemption in because of their whatever medical conditions are. Then off to that side from that were the religious accommodations. So everybody up there, so they already knew who was already going through the line and who was taken care of. And then they knew who they were going to face next. You know what I mean? Okay, who we got these folks now. Who do we go after next? That's cool. Not only did they coerce everybody, that's segregation. And they discriminated against it. So those are three main things that are in the UCMJ, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice. That's the military law, okay, that they broke right then and there. All of it. Whatever they, the coercion, the segregation, they split everybody up in the groups. And then they discriminated you, especially if you were standing up for your rights that you believed in. So in, in that point, what I want to make is, so if my religious beliefs, they were discriminating against my belief in God. So that's how everything played out on my base. And that's what I saw with my own eyes. And I couldn't stop it no matter. And I kept going back in my mind. I gave you guys this information as an NCO. And you didn't even give me the time of day to sit down and look at me. How do you, you know, look at the research that I did, maybe even ask me questions. Why do you think that? And all I was doing was saying to take a time out, which was to stop everything, look at both sides of the coin, meaning look at what's going on now. You know what I mean? What the adverse reactions are doing before you make this, this decision to do this to these people who haven't gotten it yet. So that's where I was at in October. And I vaguely remember, <clears throat> actually, I remember like it was yesterday because after that drill weekend and I watched my people that I knew, friends of mine that were lining up getting this, I watched uh, a girl, like I had stated, that was as old as my daughter, which is roughly around the 20, you know, in her 20s, on her knees, bawling her eyes out. And instead of in officers doing something and trying to stop this and seeing what was going on, it wasn't just her, there were others as well. Okay, there's like mass pandemonium, not stopping anything. You know what I mean? They continued doing what they were doing. And that's when I knew that every time when I went on that base from that day forward, that I was on enemy territory every single day because I couldn't believe what was happening. March the fact that come Monday when I was, the day after the drill weekend, I was pouring my coffee in the morning and I couldn't even pour it. Like, I mean, my hands were shaking and everything. And my wife said to me, what what's the matter? Are you okay? And I just dropped everything. I hit my knees, dude. And I bawled my eyes out probably for 15, 20 minutes. And I was just shaking because I couldn't stop. I couldn't do anything. You know what I mean? I couldn't, it was just, it was just horrible. And it, we were, like I said, when I keep saying we were at war, that's war because now I knew what was going to happen to everybody and everything is the research that I saw and everything that's come to fruition now, <clears throat> and I know I'm going a little bit ahead of everything, but everyone had that got it is, is everyone is created differently in the eyes of God or their DNA is created differently. So this bioweapon is what it is, or this vaccines or these shots, whatever you want to call it. I call it a bioweapon. These shots are timed depending on the person's DNA. That's my belief. So it doesn't, it may hit some people right away. It may hit some people five months down the road and so forth. You understand where I'm coming from? And this is what we're seeing right now. Yes. We're seeing people, you know, go ahead. No, no, no. I agree with you. Keep going. I'm sorry. I'm just commenting. Yes. No, that's cool. Um, so this is what we're seeing now. 
And this is what I knew was going to happen. Like I felt it, you know what I mean? Like I could see it coming and I couldn't do anything about it. So you, when you think about trying to save people's lives and you can't do a thing whatsoever about it, you know what I mean? That was the magnitude of how it, it felt for me. And I just prayed. And I mean, I hit my knees. I prayed. I was bawling my eyes. I'm always like, what's the matter? And I said, I looked up and I saw her and I was, I mean, I knew that my face was like wet, like drenched with tears. And I said, you haven't seen what I've seen. You know what I mean? And that was it. And from that point on, I, I calmed down. I got up and then it was as if I just had to just dust myself. I was like, get up, dust yourself off. And I know what I needed to do from here on out. Submitted my religious accommodation. So that was even wild too for me because they knew that I stood up. So now I was a target. You know what I mean? So now come November's drill, we have to submit a religious accommodation. Well, we had 30 days. We were told we had 30 days to submit it. Come to find out, we only had 24 hours because they changed the rules at the drop of a dime. So thank God that I was already starting it, November's drill on a Saturday, because Sunday, nobody was able to go home. No one was able to leave the base, according to the leadership. Okay, so here we go with coercion again. So no one was allowed to leave unless you either had it done or are going to submit it before you left. So my laptop was at home, but here we go again <laughs> with another barricade that I am able to get past. My son, my oldest son is in the guard. My wife was working at the time, even though she had a military ID and everything, but I was already working on a religious accommodation that Saturday night. So I had it about halfway done. And uh, I messaged my son. I said, can you bring my laptop from home and everything that's on top of it? And he brought it out to the base because I wasn't allowed to leave because God forbid if I left, you know, I'm disobeying a direct order. You know what I mean? So I just sit there and wait. But the cool thing about everything is that I finished my religious accommodation in the chapel, on the pew with my son next to me, completed it, handed it into the chaplain, emailed it to him, whatever you want to say. They waited there for me to get be done. I think I was the last person on the base to leave. I had to go down to medical and go through their spiel of why, if I don't get the vaccine, that I could potentially die and things like that. So another set of coercion. But I noticed another thing, and this is where <laughs> this is where it gets really wild for me because here we go again. So I'm leaving the base, and I leave the base. I think it was probably about 5:30 p.m. <clears throat> on Sunday. My son had already left and everything. And before I left, um, we got to the guard gates and everything, and there were American citizens outside the guard gates with American flags and signs saying, do not, you know, inoculate or no jabs for our troops or no jabs for our, you know, for our military. And while other people were just driving by them, I just felt to pull over. And I pulled over and I got out of my truck and I went over and I started talking to them. And I've never seen, I just never seen anything like this before in my career. I mean, I've seen it like on TV and stuff like that, but to see it in real time is just utterly amazing because there was gigantic American flags hung over the overpass of the highway. There were just so many American citizens out there over the, the uh, overpass and right by the guard, you know, right by the, the entrance gate. And that was, meant something to me because that was just another sign that I believe from God that was 
you know, now it's not just about you. Now it's these people are going to be suffer are suffering as well. So this is where your oath comes into play. You know what I mean? It was just another thing that was embedded in my mind that, you know what I mean? It was just, how do you say, shore up, you know, your duty that, you know, knowing what you need to do. And uh, so that was November of 2021. And then uh, I'll just fast forward through everything because this could go on pretty much for hours. So basically they denied my religious accommodation. I appealed it. Then they denied my appeal. So at that point, we're at January and I'm given an LOR, which is a letter of reprimand. Now, mind you, through this whole time, I have not signed any documents except for the initial order. The initial order, everybody had to sign uh, stating that you do, in fact, understand the order given to you that you need to go and get this vaccine. So I didn't sign that order, but I did find a way through other people, and this are American citizens, again, that I was speaking with outside of the military that were involved in constitutional uh, training, so to speak, or schooling, education-wise. And I spoke to this one lady, and I showed her the document, and she said, you don't have to sign that. You can use your constitutional signature. I said, what's that? Because I never heard of anything like that. She said, you can sign it under duress. So you're actually signing it. That way, you're not disobeying the order, but now you're telling them that you said no, and now you're going to be able to sign it under arrest and saying that this is fraudulent. And then she also taught me about the UCC codes, which is a code. It's a, I'm not sure all of it, you know, but it's basically UCC 1-308. And it's a code that's in, I guess, that you can use that's an under duress code. So that's what I signed the document on. And when they saw that, their eyeballs shot out of their head. I mean, I could see the look on their face. Like, they go from, you know, ha, 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 we got them, to like, what's this? You know what I mean? So I saw the expression. I knew, you know, here we are again, another blessing from God, you know what I mean, that brings these people that I don't even know, that I haven't met in my entire life up until now, that are helping me out, and I'm able to battle through this. So no doc, I refuse to sign any of the documents except for the initial order. Then I'm given an LOR by uh, the colonel of the base. What is an LOR? Initially, what's that? Letter what? of reprimand. Okay, letter of reprimand. Thank you. Yep. So an LOR, basically, it's like there's, uh, you know, they tell you, hey, you know, you're being reprimanded for this because you're not following an order. You know what I mean? And they write up this big page of, you know, garbage, which initially for me, was crazy because it was my first, <laughs> my first ever LOR in my whole military career. So my whole military career has been unblemished up to this point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so Colonel Robinson basically uh, says to me, he goes, let me read this to you. And I said, you don't have to read it, sir, because I'm not going to sign it. You know what I mean? I didn't do anything wrong. If anything, I've met with him eight times with my leadership to try to stop this thing. You know, number one. Number two, in passing, going from the command post where they're at to the galley where I work at, uh, I ran into him and he knew after all the eight times that we met and me doing what I was doing, standing up for that, for my airmen and everything in my, as an NCO, my oath to the constitution. But it was wild too, because in passing, they weren't shaking hands at that point. They were like, everybody was like fist bumping, you know what I mean? 
And I don't do that. You know what I mean? I don't play into that stuff. I was like, shake my hand like a man type of person. You know what I mean? And in passing, he said to me, uh, I saluted him. And he saluted me back and he went to fist bump me. I said, I shake hands. And he, he shook my hand and everything. And he pulled me in and he goes, keep doing what you're doing. So he already knew, like, this is, this is where it gets crazy. He already knew what I was doing. Okay. So I was standing up and I was getting singled out through all of this because now I'm fighting through all of it on top of everything else. And now I'm being given an LOR, letter reprimand, for standing up for my airmen, for doing the right thing, for standing up for my oath, for being an NCO, for protecting my airmen. You know what I mean? And all and calling for a timeout because I see danger that's coming. So that's what I'm being reprimanded for. And I said to him, I said, sir, with all due respect, with everything, my beliefs, my religious beliefs and everything that I've stood for, I can't, I can't sign this. You know what I mean? So I spun it back around to him. And all the while, the command chief, she's sitting across from me and Senior Feltz, the guy that said that I called it for a declaration of war, <laughs> which, which basically we were at, um, sat like five seats down the end of the table. I guess he thought I was going to flip out or whatever, but I didn't. Uh, I kept my composure through this whole thing and stayed honorable and respectful through everything, no matter what they did to me, which was a feat in itself. Um, so anyways, the LOR, I spin it back to Colonel Robinson and I said, I'm not signing it. So he gets this look on his face. Like, you know, you can tell he's pissed. And, uh, so I, I said, I, I'd like to have a copy of that. Now I have copies of all my documents of everything from beginning to end. I saved a copy of every single thing. So I have a nice big binder with, you know, protection sheets and those documents are in those protection sheets. I got it's probably like a three ring binder full of documents that I've saved through this whole thing. Uh, so I asked him, I said, can I have a copy of that? He goes, well, you got to sign in order to get a copy. I said, well, I'm not signing. So I guess I'm not getting a copy. And he goes, nope, you're not. So I said, can I be dismissed? He goes, yep. So I left. I went back to the defect. That's basically the galley or the dining facility. That's what we call it in the Air Force. Uh, and about two hours later, my chief comes up to me and he goes, what the heck did you do up there? They're, you know, yelling and everything. And I said, I didn't do anything. I said, I told him I wasn't going to sign the LOR. He goes, you're getting an LOR? I said, for, for nothing. Yeah, supposedly. I said, I asked for a copy of it and they didn't give me a copy. So has to be dismissed. And here I am. He goes, well, I guess they went to JAG and JAG said that they have to give you a copy. So I, <laughs> so I ended up getting a copy anyways. And on the copy of it, it says member refused to sign. So all my documents say that <laughs> up until. I love this uh, part of the story. Keep going. It, it's just wild. It really is. So all through this, then um, I get in touch with Davis Yost. My wife finds him on the internet. He's a JAG officer uh, for the Air Force, which is, they do, you know, military law. That's what it means. Um, <clears throat> and he's in Harrisburg, which is, you know, halfway through the state. It's probably about a four-hour drive for me to get out there um, if I were to drive that way. So I get in touch with them and they get, um, I get also get in touch with a lady called Christine. Her name's Christina. I don't know her last name, but she's with Stanwood Warriors. And I get involved in that. And they, they basically put me into the first lawsuit, which was with the Navy SEALs from Liberty Council. So they put me in that lawsuit, which I think was the very first one. It was uh, SEALs versus Biden. And they put me in there. And uh, so now I'm like getting my my first taste of like what's really going on and everything. And 
I'm learning now, mind you, I'm learning all this new stuff. I'm basically going back to college, you know, what I mean? <laughs> writing all these papers and letters and everything else that's got to be, you know, put in a certain format in, you know, a military format, whatever they, they're asking for. You know what I mean? Sometimes I had to do it two or three times to get it right. You know, so you can see the frustration of that. You know what I mean? Because they didn't even know what format it needed to be in. You know what I mean? Everything was getting pieced together as they were going through it because they didn't even know at the time what was happening. So. This is a big story. Uh, There's a. Uh, I speak with. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, please. So I speak with Davis Yost and I get to learn all this stuff. And then um, Senator Mastriano, Doug Mastriano out of Pennsylvania is campaigning to run for governor. So we're in 2022, um, and I'm starting to do my due diligence. So I go through my mayor, I go through my state rep, I go through my congressman, I go through, you know, all the the proper channels that I need to do to continue to fight to get these letters and to help support me because I'm not too fluent with the, these lawsuits and stuff like that. So I continue to fight on, and I'm still going to drills all this time. I'm, I haven't been placed in the RR yet. Uh, <clears throat> so I end up going to a lot of these campaigns. He's out in my area in Western Pennsylvania. So I go to those areas. So Somerset is the first place that I met him. Teddy Daniels was there. He's running for Lieutenant governor and Kathy Bar Kathleen Barnett was running also great people, all military people, mind you. Um, so I go out to Somerset, I drive like two hours out, out of my way just to, to do this. I'm also making phone calls and sending emails and everything. And I'm not getting the response that I kind of need. You know what I mean? Like I know that they're doing what they're doing, but I'm not getting what I what I what I feel that I need. So I go out there where he's campaigning, and I bring my this paperwork with me that I've been collecting this whole time. So you get to do like a meet and greet type thing, no money or nothing like that. You know what I mean? To meet or anybody, just go up and say hi, and you know, show your support and stuff like that. So I get up there and I. I meet with him and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Mastriano, and there are other people behind me, so I can't initially take all of his time up. But afterwards, he sits down with me, he goes, let me, you know, get with everybody else. And he goes, we'll talk, you know, after this is done. I said, absolutely. So I waited, and in about 15 minutes, he gave me of his time, him, Teddy Daniels, and Kathy Barnett, and they all sat down, and I put the paperwork out on the table, and they actually sat and listened to me my concerns of what happened, basically the whole story I'm telling you. And um, they actually listened to everything. And in April, he sent me his office. He had his secretary send me a medical symposium of all the doctors that met in Harrisburg, that they did everything that was what was already happening, what I already knew a year ago, and probably everybody else that's standing up and fighting also knew what was going to happen, what these side effects were. So at that point, we're pretty much almost in, I would say we're almost to April, in April, he sent me a letter, but in March, uh, February's drill, I just want to take a step back a little bit because this was kind of kind of crazy to the story. So in February, they tried to coerce me again. They said, well, if you're not going to get the vaccine, you know, you're on no pay, no points. Now, mind you, I'm, this is my 19th year. I'm in 19 years, six months right now. Um, coming up. So December of 2022, I'm supposed to retire. 
honorably. This is like my end. This is the end for me, right? And they know that. So February's drill, he says, if you don't get this, you know, my senior master Sergeant Feltz, uh, he's like, you don't get this. You know, you're on no pay, no points for March. You're not coming in. Okay. I guess I'm not coming in. So I'm on no pay, no points for March. But they bring me back in in April on drill status. So I come back in and I do my job. Like I come in regular job, boom, you know, cooking and everything. And then they said, oh, you're going to be placed into the IRR. So here we are in April. I get the letter from Senator Mastriano and everything. And I present it to them. I was like, listen, and now I'm also going to the IG. I submit two IG complaints and an EEOC complaint. Also, because of discrimination, everything that's happened on the base, the whole bit. I mean, I've done every single nook and cranny of this thing. So I present him the, a letter, basically all the links and everything from the medical symposium from Senator Mastriano's office. It clearly states it's from his office. And they still ignore it. So they say, um, you know, you're getting ready. We're going to place you into the IRR. What's that? He goes, well, basically, you know, it puts a hold in your military career until you get the vaccine. I said, well, I'm not getting it. I said, you guys didn't honor my religious accommodation. You denied that. You tried to give me an LOR. You've now threatened me with punishment, you know, all this punishment. And now you're punishing me again because I'm not getting the vaccine. You're going to put my career on hold, unblemished military career of 19 years, six months right now on hold. And you know what I mean? So, so that's basically what happened. So then Colonel, my Lieutenant Colonel wasn't there again. So they brought me back out in May on paying points. And that's when they gave me my letter um, that I'm being placed into the IRR. So May 8th of 2022, I was, that was my last drill for about 16 months. <laughs> I was on the shelf and all that time I fought like crazy. Um, I was on Wendy Bell radio show in June and she that's, she's out of Pittsburgh and she has her own radio program and everything like that. And she, or I think her husband is in the air guard. He's a pilot. And I met her again through meeting Senator Mastriano while he was campaigning. So all this time he's still campaigning local in my local area. So like, um, uh, he was in Carnegie and he was in, I'm trying to think the other town that's close to me. He's definitely in Carnegie and he was over in uh, Washington County. So I went to those two and I met, I met uh, Wendy Bell at the Carnegie um, area that he was having his uh, campaign. He was campaigning at, and I met with her and I went up there again and I talked to him and in turn, he introduced me to Wendy Bell. So at that point in time, she contacts me. And it's the end of June. And she asked me if I want to be on the radio show to put out what's going on about the vaccine mandates. So I do the show and everything. And on top of that, I'm doing, I'm at revival today brigade. It's revival brigade. It's a church in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. And he's the only uh, church in our area that never shut down during the lockdowns for church or anything like, you know, for ministries and conducting church for, you know, citizens, people who want, you know, who want to, you know, give glory to God and go to church. And uh, so I find out from friends of mine who are in the guard who are, who are going there. So I attend. So all this time that I'm out of that, I'm attending church a lot. I mean, even during this, I'm attending church, but all these other places start shutting down. You can't go there. So 
I found a place that was open and went there and uh, they have a veterans brigade. So I joined that and I do ushering and security for the church during this time frame. I still do it to this day on Sundays or help out whenever they do ministries and stuff like that. And I felt like I was a part of something bigger, you know, than the military, of course, um, because I was out of that at that time. And at that point, um, they put me on the Revival Day Today podcast. And that was my first, well, my second interview uh, that I did about the vaccines and my fight and my story. Uh, and that was, I would say, July of 2022. And at that point, at the after that, um, I felt compelled to write a letter to President Trump, even though at the time, you know what I mean? Uh, it depends on your point of view and what you know. That Let me just say that. He's still my president. That's what I'm going to say, and I'll leave it at that point. So I write a letter to President Trump. I basically do two folders. They're both red. And I basically put copies of all the documents of everything that I have gone through at this point in time. And I do a certified mail. I do one to Bedminster, New Jersey, and I do one to Mar-a-Lago, Florida. So I basically compile, I'll send this to you afterwards, but you should see it's pretty cool. So I basically write a letter to him. Basically, I'm, I have exhausted everything. All my efforts at this point in my mind have been exhausted. You know, where do I go to next in a chain of command? I go, I go to somebody who I feel can make a difference and who I, you know, uh, who's my president, basically, who loves the military, who loves our country, who, you know, stood up and fought for our country, who gave, you know, power back to the people, you know, in his inauguration in 2017. You know what I mean? So all these things combine into this. I send a letter and the one from Bedminster comes back. It comes back to me, uh, return to sender. So I know he's not there, but I get it signed for, certified at a Mar-a-Lago. And I know he got it there and I get the receipt, the signed receipt and everything like that from the mailroom. So I know that got there. I never got a response, but I know it got there. You know what I mean? So... All through this, I'm battling, I'm fighting. Uh, I'm getting involved big time with a lot of different things. But what I'm also doing is I'm still showing up for drill in my civilian clothes just on Saturday to let my airmen know that I didn't give up on them and I'm not going to let them down. Because I understand uh, from an NCO standpoint, from what I saw from my perspective and my story, there's a different element that I see that maybe others either haven't experienced or haven't seen, I don't know, because everyone has their own, their own gig. But for me, I wanted to keep my presence known, letting them know that I'm not giving up, number one. Number two, that they haven't beaten me and they're not, I'm not afraid of them. And that I'm there for them as an NCO, I'm still here no matter what. So I was there for breakfast every drill, just for about an hour or two, just to show my face and let the so-called leadership know that they are not going to beat me. And then we come basically full circle that um, I got in touch with, uh, through my church, um, Chris Ann Hall, who's a constitutional attorney. Um, basically, she's amazing. She helped me out tremendously. My church has helped me out tremendously. Everybody that I know has helped me out tremendously. Um, God, <laughs> I pray all the time, so I know my prayers are being answered by God. So all this time, 
there's these different lawsuits that are being put into place. I know you kind of know about them. I don't know all of them, but I see a lot of, now I'm starting to be in groups with other military members that are fighting also. So with Stand With Warriors, it was kind of started out with just a couple of people that I knew of, but now I'm getting to meet like Mark Bashaw and Rob Pike and all these people that I never met ever before in my life. I want people to understand that I've never seen these people, but none of these folks, these brave people in my life whatsoever up until I would say July of this, of this past year, 2023. So like I said, all this time I'm meeting and fighting and doing all this stuff. And, um, I guess if you can come to December of 2023, when they signed the NDAA, where they basically rescinded the vaccine mandates. So all this time, like I said, I've got letters from congressmen going, like Congressman Reschenthaler, state reps were being sent in consistently, like nonstop. Uh, so we're at December of 2023 right now, going to the gym. Yeah, I think I just want to make sure I get everything right because I start losing track of time. All right, so it's December 2022, right? It was rescinded. 2023, January is where we're going to be at now. But like I said, I've been fighting through all this stuff. I just get lost in the shuffle with time. But anyways, we go all the way through, and then I resubmit my paperwork to be reinstated because now they're allowing, we get letters, we got this letter and stuff to come back, you know, and serve again and, this and that. So I resubmit my paperwork to to be reinstated. Now, mind you, I'm still under contract because I I signed on for four years. I've only completed three. And they basically put me in the IRR while I was almost coming up on my retirement. I was in my retirement year coming up to uh, to finish out in December of 2023. And then uh, my contract was for an additional year because they wanted to make sure that all my paperwork and everything gets put through. I get my retirement letter and everything else. So I was still under a year. So they basically null and voided their contract on, you know, for me, as far as my enlistment goes. So they're in breach of contract because of that, because they broke it. Uh, man, this is just a lot to talk. <laughs> this is a lot. I'm trying to get the timeline right. So I don't mess anything up, but it's a lot of information. So where, did, where uh, does so that bring us to today? Where are you at today with uh, that? Basically, it brings us to, well, I'd want to touch on one thing because I think it's really important. So I get reinstated. uh, I'm supposed to be reinstated in March of 2023. This was last March now. Um, I pass all my physicals and everything. So if you're, what happened is, is the way the letter goes is that if you're within six months, you don't have to go back through MEPS. So we know what MEPS is. You got to go down to, you know, and get your full physical and medical all the way from beginning to end, you know, like you're going back in the basic training. So if you're behind 12 months, you don't have to go to MEPS. So fortunately for me, I was behind that 12 months. So I just had to go back to my base. I got in with my recruiter and everything, resubmitted all my paperwork. So as if I'm like re-enlisting again, even though I'm still under contract, which is wild. So I passed my physicals. I'm physically fit for duty and everything. But then the nurse practitioner on the bay on the 9-11th, uh, Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Pounds pulls one of these things. He's like, okay, um, you're fit for duty and everything, but you have to get the flu vaccine. And I was like, why would I get flu vaccine? It's March. 
we usually don't get those until September, October, November-ish. I'll be done by then. You know what I mean? I'll be out by that time. So that set another question. And then I started seeing information on social media and doing my own research that they were combining the, the COVID vaccine with the flu vaccines. So what else are they combining this stuff with? You know what I mean? So here we go again. I submit another religious accommodation. This time around, um, my pastor signs a letter. Chris Ann Hall writes two letters to the commander of the base. I've got another letter coming from Congressman Reschenthaler on top of that. Fast forward to September of 2023, this past September, I'm finally reinstated because they wanted to pull this garbage on me too to see, I guess, to get me. I don't know. You know what I mean? In my mind, anything is possible. Um, so here we go again. So there's another six-month delay. You know what I mean? So I'm finally reinstated in September. They finally put combine all my drill dates together because I have to get 50 points to have a good year in order to get my 20th year. So now they're moving drill dates from other months into this current fiscal year so I can get everything done. And I finally accomplished that. I get over 50, I think I got like 56 points by the end of this past December. So December of 2023. So the 30th, I'm supposed to uh, ETS, but I had to extend until April of 2024 because they were afraid I wouldn't get all my points in because of the uh, the financial part of the country. So uh, the budget wasn't being passed. You understand what I'm saying? So everything had to get moved down the line to make sure that there was funding in order for me to get paid in my points. So I finally finished out all my, la my last drill and everything in January. And now I'm set to retire uh, this April 6th, uh, 2024. So I fought all the way through, got back in the service and finished out honorably. And this will be my fourth honorable discharge. And in my mind, I not only fought for myself, but I fought for my airmen, um, I didn't give in to them, uh, to the bad people that I, you know, the bad leadership. Uh, they couldn't beat me. And I was planning on going like 15 plus rounds of boxing with these guys or these individuals. Uh, I wasn't going to give up whatsoever. So uh, somebody was going to, and it wasn't going to be me. And here we are right now, and I've been doing you know, different podcasts and interviews. And I'm so thankful for this opportunity uh, to tell my story and to get it out to everybody to let them know that this is, you know, here we are. We've been attacked. Our military has been hit. It's weakened our defenses within the country. The American citizens are thinking or possibly thinking that we don't have to stand up and fight because we are military fights for us. You see where I'm getting at? So how do you take a country down? You hit, their, you hit the military. And I feel that we've been attacked and we were hit with that bioweapon. It split everybody up for them to stand. People would stand up, you know what I mean? Whoever was going to fight, other ones were staying in and now have a, a bioweapon in their body that has adverse reactions and probably is making them sick and probably even worse. You know what I mean? And, you know, here we are. And it's time to stand up. And then here comes the... You know, January 1st at 4 a.m. in the morning and the Declaration of Military Accountability is signed by 231 plus military members that in their own way have stood up and their own story have stood up for their own reasons have stood up, for their oath have stood up and for the country have stood up. 
for this. And that was, that's what it's about. It's, we've had enough. We've exhausted every single opportunity uh, from a legal standpoint to a moral standpoint and everything in between. And we have so many people that are here that I'm so blessed to be a part of, Scott. I mean, I can't even tell you like how cool this has been and how just just as a special time it's been right now. So needless to say, 4 a.m. they dropped the, this letter and now a petition has been signed is being signed by the American public. And our duty is to get that information out there. Um, to do speakings, to do interviews, to get America, American citizens involved and sign the petition and stand alongside their military and put a stop to this destruction of our country. Let's close with this because I think you've got, there's just a fantastic story. But when you look at the 231 and you're a man of God and we give all glory to God, how do you see the 231 from that lens? Uh, like I said, I, like I stated before, there's, there's been instances and just as my story is concerned, I can only imagine what the others, the other 231 stories are like, because when I say spiritual, I just want to touch back to when I met Mark Bashaw and Rob Pike, who were part of the 231 who signed the declaration. And like I said, I've just talked to them like I'm talking to you now in this interview. I never met them face to face. And in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we were at Rob Pike's church. And um, Rob Green's book was basically being put out. Um, I'm trying to think about the the way it happened. But uh, Rob had asked me to come out. He's from Delaware. And I think Mark was down in Virginia at the time before he was moving down to Texas. And Rob had invited me out to Lancaster to talk to his church and it's just the three of us and his parents were so like, and this is how I believe God has brought everybody together. His parents invited me and let me stay at their house. I didn't have to even get a hotel or nothing. You know what I mean? And I've never met these people in my life and it was so cool. They were former military too. And they let me stay there and I got to know his parents and everything. And they were so supportive of Rob and everybody else that was already standing up even before we became the 231. You know what I mean? And this is why I mean, like, how spiritual everything's been and how all of us have been brought together. Things like this just don't happen just because, they, you know, there is definitely a plan in place, and it's, it's God's plan. Without a doubt, it really is. Yep. Well, Scott, we do a prayer at the end of every show. If it's okay with you, yeah, I'll give you a prayer. Yep, absolutely. Father God, I just want to thank you for this time we've had with Scott and all that he's been through and all that he continues to do in telling his story to awaken people to the depths of corruption and depravity within our military ranks. Father, this is a difficult time because we're really lacking moral character and moral courage. And yet, from the most unsuspecting places, we find the greatest courage emerging from the places we would not look we find that that moral courage now stands. This is truly an era of the Gideon's army. And so, Father, we thank you for this, all the 231 and all that that represents as a representation of a nation 
where the Gideons and the heart of Gideon is standing up and being part of something greater to understand that in this hour, we have to give everything of ourselves to you and to this nation. So Father, we just ask for that continued rise of the hearts of the warriors in Christ, the stories like this that can resonate deeply and may this, may this testimony as others continue to inspire the hearts of those that may be timid, but now to step into the light and say, I'm here, send me. And may the story here, the story truly of Tech Sergeant Scott Lauterbaugh lead people to an understanding of the depth of depravity, the need to stand up and the need to stand side by side with our military. Bless him, guide him, provide him with all that he needs. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, brother, thank you for your time. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great to meet you. And uh, like I said, there's so many, man. Like, I got to meet Brad for like the first time. It was cool. Like, you know, just on Zoom call and just seeing people, you know, through the technology that we have now, this has been amazing. So. I can't wait to, like, like I said, when you and I were talking before, I can't wait to actually see everybody and meet everybody, you know, face to face. It'd probably be pretty neat for everybody. Yeah, it'd be great. Well, have a blessed day. Thank you. And uh, we'll we'll talk real soon. Thank you. All right. Take care. And God bless. God bless. Patriots, that was Tech Sergeant Scott Lauterbaugh, just a cook, that had more courage than every one of our flag officers in the entire military. Let that sink in. This man stood for his troops, put his troops first, and even declared, stated that we were under a declaration of war. This is a, these are the types of people that signed on to the letter of the 231. They're the best of America. And it doesn't have to deal, deal with schools. It doesn't have to deal with titles of being in special operations. It's the heart, the heart of the patriot, the heart of a warrior, the heart of one that puts his soldiers first and understands the words in the oath to protect and defend from enemies foreign and domestic. Obviously, we are overrun with enemies domestic. And so for those, again, that are in positions of the federal government and in the state and in your county and you're turning your back on the Constitution, we're sending, we're pleading with you, do the right thing. Support the Constitution and turn away from your unions and illegal laws because hammer's coming. And when it comes, God help your soul. Patriots, keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never body evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tomorrow morning for Bended Knee. Until then or until the next time, God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe again. Dive into the deepest Oh, I wanna feel so